here to talk to you today about uh, the book of Colossians. We've been running through that for the last few weeks now. Uh, last week, or the last few weeks, we, we sort of spent time looking at God's uh, work in the Christian's life. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the Christian life looking like uh, receiving, growing, and going, a sort of constant cycle uh, there. Then we've dealt with some potential threats to the movement, uh, to the Christian movement, with heretical theology creeping into the Colossian church. Uh, last week, we saw how uh, God gives the Christian all they need for life in the person of Jesus as opposed to all these Gnostic um, entities that were being floated around. And today uh, we're going to look at, at how it is that God has chosen to bring his gifts to you. What is it that God uses to get the goods to us? Uh, chances are you probably haven't thought about it all that much. Uh, we probably assume that because God is God, that he just does it. He just does it immediately uh, without anything uh, in between. But the, the truth is, though he could indeed do that because he is God, he can do what he wants, uh, God does not ordinarily zap us into the kingdom. <laughs> he does not ordinarily do things apart from what we would call means, or to use the terminology that Lutherans are very fond of, means of grace. Another way of thinking about it might be vehicles, a vehicle by which God delivers the goods. And these vehicles throughout history have been called sacraments. Um, and there are three of them. There's, of course, the Word, the Bible. There's uh, communion. And then there's the sacrament we're going to talk about today, the means of grace of baptism. And it is in the sacrament of baptism that God, is sort of, God sort of initiates us into his kingdom. He, that's where he initially delivers the goods to us, his work to us, for us. So let me show you what I mean from our text. We're going to look at Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. It reads like this. In him, speaking of Jesus, who we have all the fullness in, it says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Well, there's a, a lot here in this passage, uh, but the first thing I want to point out to you about this sacrament of baptism is that it's pretty clear to me that baptism is the New Covenant's circumcision. All throughout the New Testament letters, Paul, especially Paul, in his letter to the Romans and to the Galatians, tells us things like, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Galatians 5.2. Uh, Galatians 6.15. Neither circumcision counts for anything, um, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And then finally, uh, Romans 2.29, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Okay, so circumcision, uh, the old covenant circumcision is very clearly uh, given to, is said that we're not to do it, that we don't have to do it anymore as Christians. And so when we read things like that, it might give us the impression uh, that circumcision was completely done away with in every way. And in one sense, that would be correct. The physical cutting of the foreskin 
is no longer to be the symbol for God's people in the new covenant. But just because physical circumcision has been done away with, that doesn't mean that we don't still need a circumcision of the heart. And what Paul says in our text today is that the circumcision of the heart happens in baptism. Let me read it again. In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision without, made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by, circumcision, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Through the simple act of God's word and water applied to a person, the heart is circumcised. Now, as a Lutheran pastor, I get asked all the time, why in the world do you baptize babies? I've tended to have a lot of people coming from evangelical backgrounds join our churches, join the churches that I've pastored, and, uh, and everything seems to be going hunky-dory, and then the first Sunday they see me baptize that baby, they're like, oh, what, 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 is just, what did you just do to that child? You put water on him. And so I, I, if they ask me, and I've gotten used to giving answers, and one of the first places I take them to is this passage. And I ask simply, as we read this passage, I say, well, when was circumcision done in the Old Testament? It wasn't when a person had been able to make a conscious decision on their own, nor was it after they could understand what was going on. In fact, circumcision was performed on infants. Now, if baptism is the new covenant circumcision, like this text in Colossians seems to be very strongly pointing it to, doesn't it make sense to baptize babies just like we were instructed to circumcise them in the Old Testament? I found that for some, this is a very helpful way of thinking about it, a very helpful argument. Uh, what you have to work out for yourself is just what I've told you. Do, do you see the connection being made between the new covenant circumcision of the heart and baptism? Because I think the language is pretty clear, but look at it again and dig in and see if you can, uh, if you're not convinced of that, look to it. Look at the scriptures and dig thoroughly. So uh, what does God say he delivers in baptism then? Well, he tells us baptism puts off the body of the flesh. In other words, that the new creation that Paul so wants us to be, that's given to us by God in baptism. Uh, Romans 6, Paul talks about baptism again, in this, in, in, he's referencing there um, the power to live the Christian life, uh, to live in victory over sin, and, and what he does to kind of get us there is he anchors us in our baptism. He says this in Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See very similar language to Colossians here. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul anchors his argument against antinomianism, if you will, or licentiousness in your baptism. His point, if you've been baptized, you are a new creation. How then can you walk like you haven't been washed in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Which leads to the next thing that he tells us baptism does in our Colossians text, and that is it buries us with Christ. So it not only kills us, but it buries us with him. The old sinful nature that rules naturally every human being has been in the waters of baptism crucified or drowned, 
It no longer has mastery over you. It no longer rules you. Yes, it tries to squirm back to life. Yes, we battle against it in the here and now. Romans 7 is very clear about that. But in the sight of God, that old part of us is dead and gone. All God sees in us is a resurrected, spirit-filled Christian clothed in the righteousness of his Son because in our baptism we were raised with Christ. Our old nature isn't merely killed in baptism, but we are given a new nature that desires to be, yes, obedient to God and to serve our neighbors. The new nature loves God's law. We don't love and coddle our sin, but we fight against it by the Spirit's power with the new nature we've been given. This new desire, new life, is given by the Word of God. It's nourished by the Word of God and His sacraments. Again, I realize for, for many uh, that are hearing what I'm saying now, and I'm not giving nearly enough time to this right now, this might be a paradigm shift. Most of the people I've ministered to, the idea of baptism being anything more than a symbol is a paradigm shift. Uh, so what I just ask you to do is, uh, number one, feel free to ask questions. Feel free to, to discuss it with somebody who might hold to this idea of baptism. This is, I believe, the historic and most biblical view of what baptism does. Um, it is a gift. It is a gift meant to be get, meant to be cherished and held on to. I'll close. I'll close with this. Uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther used to. Martin Luther used to always say to people that were struggling with uh, with despair. They were wondering if they were really Christians. He would tell them, "Remember." your baptism. Now, for many of these people, I would dare say most of these people, they probably couldn't actually remember being baptized because almost everybody back then was baptized as a baby. But the fact was, uh, you that was still something that objectively happened in time and space. God places the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit upon you and calls you His and makes you His own. He kills you, He buries you, and He brings you back to life. So that was an objective thing that took place. So what Martin Luther wanted us to anchor our faith in was this objective thing, not based on what we might feel in the moment, not based on how good or how bad we are, but based on what God's Word actually says. And what God's Word actually says about baptism is that he's doing good things for us there. He's killing us, he's making us alive, he's raising us together with Christ, and he has promised to give us new life. Well, I hope that encourages you. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I will see you next Friday.